0: From the nation magazine this is start making sense political talk without the boring parts i'm john weiner today we have two views of hillary's campaign memoir what happened katha Pollitt and in d.d guttenplan and we'll also speak with sasha abramski about donald trump and the politics of fear first up katha Pollitt on hillary's what happened katha of course is a poet essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. Her latest book is Pro-Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. Katha, welcome back.
1: Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Our friends have a lot of complaints about Hillary's book, What Happened, starting with her writing the book in the first place. I've heard people argue that it's destructive for the Democratic Party today to relitigate the battles between the Hillary people and the Bernie people, Yeah, I've heard people say uh, instead of uh, complaining about Bernie and about being treated unfairly by the media last year, Hillary right now should be using her time on Rachel Maddow to campaign for Medicare for All instead of selling her book. That's what some of our, our friends say. What do you say?
1: I think Hillary is going to be a very good thing for the Democratic Party. I think she's going to raise a lot of money for them and promote good organizations. I think if she wrote a book and the book is about the campaign, and you know, there's very little about Bernie Sanders in it. I happen to agree with her that Bernie was not entirely helpful to her, nor his followers either. But leaving that aside, mostly the book is about her apologizing, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which she does constantly, and uh, the the Comey letters, and Russia russia trump and all that and you know i just think people want her just to go away and die and why shouldn't she tell her story she was at the center of a world historical event that she has a unique perspective on and i just don't see what the problem is
0: and of course she did get 65 or 66 million votes i think
1: yeah i mean all this stuff about how, oh, nobody wants to hear from her anymore. That's obviously not true. Um, the book has sold, it's a, it's a bestseller. It's sold, I don't know, 300,000 copies in the first two days that it was out. When she goes on Rachel Maddow, millions of people listened. People are interested in Hillary Clinton. It's just our friends, as you put them, <laughs> but it, are not.
0: Well, the biggest complaint about the book is I'm sure you've heard this many times she blames other people for her loss instead of looking at what she herself failed to understand and could have done differently she blames as you say James Comey for that press conference a week before Election Day announcing that he was reopening the investigation of her email she blames Bernie she blames sexism she blames media bias what do you say to that criticism
1: well Having actually read the book, unlike some of the people who say what you just said, um, I have to say that's really not true. I felt that I had let everyone down because I had. How did I let that happen? She asks of the media's obsession with her emails, which was, you know, just over the top completely. I should have seen that coming, she said, as a storm of criticism for those banker speeches. Then she says... I blamed myself. My worst fears about my limitations as a candidate had come true. I'd been unable to connect with the deep anger so many Americans felt or shake the perception that I was the candidate of the status quo. And then most interestingly, she spends an entire chapter on uh, how she went to Appalachia to try to repair the damage she did. Remember when she said, we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business? And that, became this detached soundbite that completely left out what came after, which was when she talked about what the country owed the miners and their communities and all the great things that Democrats were going to do for them. And she it was completely unsuccessful, her attempt to change the minds of Appalachians. But she did go there, and she did write a chapter about it. So I think it's very unfair to say she doesn't blame herself.
0: The people who make that argument including a lot of our friends at The Nation, which, as you may recall, endorsed Bernie in the primary, Mm -hmm. was that, you know, Bernie's big ideas were seeking to set the agenda for the party, the country, the decade to come, to go beyond just what Congress would pass right now, to talk about what people really need, health care as a human right, free college tuition, $15 minimum wage, a trillion dollar infrastructure program, and to fight the enemies of all this, the banks, Wall Street, the corporations, which want tax breaks and deregulation. Now, of course, some of that did get into the platform, and Hillary supported yeah. supported that. But I think everyone could see this wasn't really her thing. Her thing was to focus on her conception of the possible. Uh, and, of course, that uh, di- di- divide remains among the Democrats today. So it isn't just that she doesn't say it's my fault that I lost, it's that she doesn't grasp this bigger battle of ideas in which she didn't really take a strong stand.
1: Well, perhaps this might be the moment to point out that she beat Bernie by 4 million votes, and she beat Trump by 3 million votes. This is Um, true. So it's not as if nobody liked her approach to our many problems. I came away from the book thinking she maybe was a little too in love with the idea of, I'm just going to do what's realistic. I'm not going to promise you things that I won't be able to deliver. That came through in the campaign. And I say, I have this comparison that – you know, both Bernie and Trump, from different angles, were able to put her in the position of being mean mom, and they got to be fun dad. And mean mom, of course, is the person who makes sure the vegetables are eaten, the homework gets done, the bills <laughs> yes. are paid on time, no, you, ca- I can't double your allowance, and fun dad makes the kids feel they have power and life is exciting. And in the end, mom got more votes and dad, both of them, got more love. I think, I think that's true. But it's it's really a character thing with her. I came away thinking yeah. that she just doesn't want to overpromise, whereas Bernie loves to overpromise.
0: Well, some would call it setting the agenda, setting goals for party, the nation, and that that's one of the things that political leaders uh, ought to do, and not just talk about what's possible, you know, in the next two two to four years. Another big issue for Hillary in her book is the role of the media, which she thinks was sexist and which focused on the wrong issues, namely her email. What did you think about her critique of the media role in the campaign?
1: I think that she was 100% right. I think um, there have been some studies out of Harvard that showed that there was endless coverage of the email, non-scandal. Do you know that Chris Saliza wrote at least 50 columns about it? <laughs> that seems um, like a lot. I know, really. How much is there to say? Um, and there was almost none of her actual positions. And then another interesting thing is Bernie Sanders actually got the most positive coverage. Um, I know his his admirers, his, his followers uh, don't think that, but according to Harvard, it's true. And both Hillary and Trump got mostly negative coverage. But here's so, so interesting Trump's platform got more attention than his scandals. Huh. And for Hillary, it was the ver- reverse. Her platform got almost no coverage. It was one little mini nonsense scandal after another. And Trump, who really did have enormous scandals, I mean, you remember Trump University and. Sure. You know, just tons and tons of stuff. Those were sort of like little blips. They came and then they went. They didn't really have the staying power that for some reason the email scandal did.
0: I have a question about sexism in the campaign. Certainly she's right that she was hurt by sexism. But what we thought during the campaign was that the the horrible sexism of Trump would rally women to her side. She would, yes, she would lose some working-class white men who had been Democrats, probably, but she would also gain some suburban middle-class women who had been Republicans, and therefore she might even come out ahead, and therefore she could be president. But, of course, it turned out that 53% of white women voted against her. To me, that's the most shocking thing in the whole campaign, aside from Trump winning, Does she talk about that? What do you think about that?
1: Well, what I think about it is that it is indeed shocking, and it shows that it shows a couple of things. One is women are sexist too. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing it shows is that politics has become more tribal than ever. Republicans came home to Trump. Uh, Look at all those evangelicals. He got more evangelical votes than Mitt Romney did. Amazing. Um, Yeah. And they all had to say ridiculous things like, well, he's a baby Christian. (laughs) (laughs) The baby Christian. I mean, you know, they had their eye on the ball. They thought, ah, the Supreme Court, ah, all those federal justices, you know, we just have to vote for this guy and we'll get them. And they did and they will get them.
0: You know, the book was reviewed in the New York Times by Jennifer Senior, and she wrote, she had a striking statement. She asked, does the book offer any new hypotheses about what doomed Clinton's campaign? And her answer is no, it synthesizes old ones. Clinton's diagnostics are the least interesting part of the book. Uh, I wonder if you agree with that.
1: No, I don't. I thought they were fascinating. Um, I thought, for example... Uh, Her discussion of the Russia stuff, the uh, dissemination of false stories on Facebook through Russian bots and trolls, um, and Obama called that this dust cloud of nonsense. You know, all that stuff added up in a way I think we're still figuring out. But, for example, this was new to me, an RT video called How 100% of the Clinton's 2015 charity, quote-unquote, went to themselves was viewed 10 million times, mostly on Facebook. And I think, you know, we're only beginning to grasp that people are in their own little worlds where, you know, they have their own facts, and they just believe what they want to believe. And that was a very active thing going on during the campaign.
0: The book is called What Happened. What is her explanation of what happened? How do you read it? Maybe you, you want to just read your What Happened uh, sentence in your piece?
1: Okay. As she acknowledges, Hillary, the policy wonk, Girl Scout, and lifelong fan of school supplies, <laughs> never quite grasped what she was up against until it was too late. She's constantly being surprised that Trump is a grotesque and ignorant bully, that people are as angry and irrational and sexist as they are, that the media isn't more interested in her carefully considered achievable policies on every social problem under the sun, that truth doesn't matter.
0: Katha Pollitt, you can read Katha Pollitt's new column on what happened at thenation.com. Katha, thanks so much for talking with us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, John.
0: How do you lose the presidency to the most unpopular presidential candidate of all time? Hillary Clinton, of course, has a book about what happened last November. It's called What Happened. And for comment, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's the nation's editor-at-large. He covered the campaign for the nation, traveling all over the country, starting with the primaries. We reached him today at his home in London. Don, thanks for staying up late to talk to us.
2: It's always good to be here, John.
0: Well, in The Nation magazine, you called Hillary's book Clintonesque. What exactly did you mean by that?
2: <laughs> well, I think I meant uh, slippery, twisty, uh, not very trustworthy, and full of special pleading. And by the way, I, I, I use that adjective because not so much, to be fair, because Hillary is not a major league dissembler, she is... Blind to her own faults, but probably no more than anybody else. But Bill is a major league dissembler, and he's someone who deserves to have an adjective named after him.
0: Hillary says over and over that uh, she takes responsibility for her loss. She knows she failed all of us who voted for her. She knows she failed everyone who needed her to win and yet, you say in the nation, she has an ugly tendency. I'm quoting to blame others for her own failings. Doesn't she say over and over that it's all her fault? Uh,
2: she says often that it's her fault, but there are two parts of that. She says often that it's her fault, but then almost every time, within a page or two, sometimes within a sentence, she says, "For she says, I did this, and I take, and I take it, it's on me." But on the other hand, didn't I do particularly well, given <laughs> excuse me, given what I was up against? Or uh, I did this, and it's on me. But if you really look at it, it's on the media, or on uh, you know, or on Bernie Sanders for talking about it, or it's on this or this. So she she takes she she takes the blame, but never the responsibility. So that's one part of it. And the other part of it is that the book has an odd title, because it's what happened, which is, of course, what we would all like to know. How can how can somebody lose to the least qualified person ever to run for president who was ahead in the polls um, and something that was supposed to be a slam dunk? But the book is really more what happened to me. It's not, it's not actually an answer about what, what happened. And uh, one of the things that she never talks about, for example which is quite interesting her uh, former pollster Stan Greenberg recently has an article in which he talks about malpractice and I think that's a strong word to use about a presidential campaign but warranted in this case and uh talks about the extent to which they they relied on their big data operation and therefore stopped doing things like polling in key states and stopped paying attention to places like Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania which were of course the states that ended up costing her the election so You don't get a lot of either reflection or detail about what happened in the campaign, how she managed to lose what should have been a a sure thing. What you do get is a lot of how it felt for her.
0: Well, I want to go back to this blaming others thing. Isn't she right to blame James Comey for for transforming the campaign at the very end. Doesn't Nate Silver show that she was ahead up to that point and that this announcement about reopening the investigation of her emails was the turning point where she went from being ahead to to losing? Boy, that's a
2: lot of questions. (laughs) I I think, you know, she she lost by, what, 60-odd thousand votes. So, you know, of course she could be right. It could have been James Comey. Or it could have been her Goldman Sachs speeches, or it could have been her emails, or it could have been the fact that, you know, when Donald Trump uh, demonstrated time and time again that he was uh, a sexist pig who, who had no consideration for women, uh, that her role as the supportive spouse as Bill, of Bill Clinton kept her from speaking out as forcefully as another woman who wasn't similarly encumbered might have been able to. Um, you know, as for Nate Silver, well, he's a smart guy, so he ought to understand multivariable analysis. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm not saying that she doesn't have a case about Comey. She probably does. And, you know, I, as I write in The Nation, sexism and misogyny certainly played a role in an election this close. They might have cost her the election, too. But my problem with Hillary is that she's. Often talking about the stacked deck, but she never complained about the stacked deck except when it's stacked against her.
0: Another deeper question is: Yes, it was a very close election, and she almost got enough votes in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Ohio to put her over the top. But why was it close in the first place? It wasn't well, supposed right. to be and close. That's
2: what goes to the malpractice question. Yeah, this is an election that should never have been close. And that, frankly, a, a, a candidate, pretty much any candidate who didn't have her enormous baggage train, would have had a better run against Donald Trump.
0: You mentioned the the speeches uh, to Goldman Sachs. This is something that she understands, or at least that she brings up in the book, is something that she was blamed for. A mishandling that she gave the speeches in the first place that she took such immense amounts of money to do it and then she wouldn't release the the text what what do you think is her understanding of why that was wrong and does she have the the correct understanding
2: well her understanding is that it was bad optics or a bad optic i believe that phrase she yeah. uses. so it's it's not that she did anything wrong. It's that it it, it it looked bad, and of course she should have realized that it would have looked bad after two thousand and eight to be seen cozying up to Wall Street for vast paydays. But you know that's as far as she goes with that, and she never talks about the way in which Bill's policies completely you know uh, destroyed Glass Steagall and and freed Wall Street to go on the kind of splurge that it crashed from in two thousand and eight. And she never talked about, uh, you know, the, the fact that nobody was, was sent to jail. I mean, the, part of the problem is that Hillary went, made lots of speeches, many of which I heard, and some of which were excellent, about what she wanted to do for people. But she never gave a sense for people who felt that they'd been shafted by the system, which was quite a lot of Americans by 2016, she never gave the sense that she was on their side. And the the question in this last election wasn't, what are you going to do for me? It's, which side are you on?
0: Which side are you on? Well, of course, her view is that she's on the side of doing good, doing good for middle-class uh, Americans. And she had very detailed plans of all the good things she was going to do. Her website, you know, had pages and pages of her, of her plans.
2: Uh, There's a plaintive point in the book where she says, she calls out this pollster, Stan Greenberg, by name, and says he didn't. He he thinks she didn't talk about jobs enough, but she did. And here's a chart, yeah. of, how, of word frequency in her speeches and how often she used the word jobs. Well, she did use jobs a lot, and she, But the thing is that people didn't believe her. They just didn't believe she cared. I mean, you know, this is even in this book, which where she's presumably trying to position herself as someone who has learned from what happened. She talks about deciding to run for president this time after spending the winter New Year's at the De Laurentiis estate in the Dominican Republic. I mean, how is somebody who's been laid off in Detroit supposed to relate to that?
0: Gee, I just checked in with Oscar De Laurentiis before this show to see how he was doing. You're not in touch with the De Laurentiises? You don't vacation? I'm not
2: on on their list anymore. (laughs) Not
0: not anymore.
2: John, we're, 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 we're in danger of doing something which is very easy to do with this book, which is to spend all our time arguing about what happened in the election. Yeah. That isn't really why the book matters, and it's not really, I think, why people are criticizing it, because... You know, I think Hillary is perfectly entitled to tell her side of the story, and I think in terms of how it felt, she does a good job of telling it. But this is about where the country is going, and particularly where the Democratic Party is going. And Hillary was, for the last year and a half, the standard bearer of the corporate centrist wing of the Democratic Party. That's who brought her to power. That's who sided with her. That's who put their thumbs on the scale at the DNC, something she doesn't talk about in the book at all. Uh, and that's who's resisting, even now, things like you know, endorsing uh, single payer. And it's the, it's the fight over actual power, over who's going to decide which way the Democratic Party goes and what the Democratic Party stands for. And Hillary has made it clear that she has no intention of bowing out from those fights. You know, she started her, I forget what it's called, together, 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 or something.
0: Stronger That's together. It. That's
2: it. <laughs> you know, she started her version of our revolution, our counter-revolution. Um,
0: <laughs> of course, what her defenders say is, look, yes, there was this divide between the Clinton supporters and and the Bernie Sanders, the Bernie supporters, but, but... Hillary beat Bernie by 2 million votes in the Democratic primaries. And, it you know, she won fair and square. Then she beat Donald Trump by 3 million votes. So uh, so she must have been doing something that a lot of people liked.
2: Well, she was doing something that a lot of people liked. But, you know, those are two separate issues. The Democratic primaries are the Democratic primaries. And it's interesting that she complains about, you know, the rules and, Coverage when it comes to her and Trump, but she doesn't complain about it when it was all in her favor during the primaries. Um, and the other thing is that I guess you can take two views of this, and I think they're they're both reasonable views. It's just that one of only one of them is my view. You can take the view that. Hillary totally won more votes, so we should do the same thing again, but just push a little harder. Yeah. Here in Britain, that's called the one more heave theory of politics, which is, you know, we almost got the ball over the goal line, so just all together push one more time, don't do anything different, no need to engage in self-criticism, which would change our policies. We'll just push harder, and this time we'll win. And, you know, if that's what you think, then... Uh, you should sign up for, you know, our counter-revolution, and, um, and good, good luck to you. I mean, I think that uh, the Democrats lost what should have been an easy win, not because it was an easy election year, but because they were running against Donald Trump. It should have been an easy win, and they lost it because they failed to make clear to people who have been suffering for the last eight years that their policies were going to make any difference in their lives.
0: Well, there was a big fight by the Bernie people. You covered it very closely to to uh, to make the Democratic platform more responsive to those issues and the needs of those people. Hillary did run on that platform. The most progressive
2: platform the Democratic Party has had. I, I don't really see a point in relitigating that except that if you liked that platform and you like the movement that generated it, then you should be, you know, in, in favor of the changes in the Democratic Party that opens it up, makes it more representative, you know, takes it out of the hands of consultants, diminishes the, the, the uh, impact of big money on, on, on elections, all of those things. And that is not the side that Hillary's been on. She's been consistently on the side of, let's do what the big donors want us to do.
0: The big question of the campaign... Don Guttenplan says, which side are you on? And that's what Hillary didn't understand about what happened. D.D. Guttenplan wrote about Hillary's book, What Happened, for TheNation.com. Don, thanks for talking with us today.
2: Thanks for having me, John.
0: Now it's time to talk about Donald Trump and the triumph of fear in American politics. For that, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. He's a freelance journalist, a lecturer at the University of California, and a regular contributor to The Nation. He's written eight books. The most recent, just published by Nation Books, is titled Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear, and the End of the American Dream. Sasha, welcome back.
3: Thanks for having me back on.
0: Well, you open your new piece for the nation by talking about Trump's comments following a big terrorist bomb attack at the Brussels airport back in March 2016 when he was running in the Republican primaries. What did Trump say and what didn't he say?
3: Well, what he didn't say was a straightforward issuance of condolence. He didn't make a statement about how sorry he felt and how sorry the American people felt for the victims of this attack, which would have been the immediate humane reaction. Instead, he immediately went on this tirade about what he called the torture, that if we'd had the torture, we would have been able to interdict these suspects, we would have been able to get them to talk about attacks before they unfolded. And he sort of almost reveled in embracing the implementation of a kind of state violence that democratic states for centuries have shied away from, from the Enlightenment period, the torture has been a taboo. Now, governments do it sometimes. They usually do it in secret because they're deeply embarrassed by it. But the idea of a major international figure asking the international community to publicly embrace forms of physical torture that have been banished by democracies for decades and centuries, that really took us in a new direction.
0: And I remember that although uh, we did torture people during the George W. Bush presidency, he never called it torture. He called it enhanced interrogation.
3: That's right. And the fact that he had a resort to euphemism and the fact that his Justice Department went out of their way to craft these legal justifications that said it wasn't torture, well, on one level, it didn't make it any better. I mean, if you were somebody at Abu Ghraib or at Guantanamo or at one of the CIA black sites, and you were being tortured, you were being waterboarded, you were being put in coffin-sized boxes for prolonged periods, you were being hung by your arms, all these ghastly things that we've read about or should have read about in Senate reports and in media accounts over the last decade. Well, if you were one of the victims, it didn't really matter whether it was called the torture or whether it was called enhanced interrogation. It was wrong. It was morally, morally wrong. But the very fact that the Bush administration was embarrassed enough by what they were doing that they looked to euphemism at least spoke to the fact that they realized that there was something grubby about it, something really awful about it, that they were skirting moral boundaries. What Trump's doing, as he talks about normalizing torture, as he talks in public about collective punishment of terrorism suspects and their families, every time he does that, he's inviting the American public to join him in the grubbiness. And one of the things that fascinated me in the election campaign, and one of the reasons why early on I started writing that Trump had at least some similarities temperamentally with earlier generations of fascist leaders. One of the things that fascism has always been very good at is making the institutions of state and making the individuals within that state morally complicit in its crimes. And when Trump talks openly about a torture regime, he's inviting everybody into the torture chamber. And that, to me, can only be possible in an era of extraordinary fear, that in normal periods in history, the American public wouldn't want to be invited into the torture chamber with their leaders. The fact that Trump has realized that millions, maybe tens of millions of Americans are very happy being invited down that dark pathway, that, to me, bespeaks to the moment of what kind of fear-based culture, what kind of fear-based politics we're now living through.
0: Torture is what Trump says we should do to our enemies. But, of course, the big question is, who exactly are our enemies? What is Trump's answer? The problem
3: is, when you unleash fear as a political currency, anything and everyone becomes the enemy. So we have real enemies. There's no doubt that al-Qaeda or ISIS, for example, are bona fide, genuine enemies. On the other hand, if you then reach out and you say, the entire Muslim world the entire Muslim religion is our enemy, as we're increasingly doing with our travel bans, our refugee bans, with the rhetoric around Islam and so on, well, then you've moved from a specific set of enemies to this very amorphous fear. Um, If you say that all Mexicans who cross the border are our enemy, if you say that all young black men on the streets demonstrating against police violence are our enemy, well, eventually... All we're doing is flailing around at one enemy after another after another. And the thing that fascinated me as I was writing the book, this transcends politics. When you get into a moment where you assume the worst of everybody and you assume that if something bad can happen, it will happen, well, that doesn't just impact your political choices. It also impacts your parenting style, whether or not you give your kids any kind of freedom, whether you let them roam around their neighborhood with friends. Um, It impacts what kind of educational choices you make, whether or not you're happy having a school that lets kids play outside or whether you want your school to be walled off. It impacts what medical choices you make. If you believe that vaccinations are some kind of vast conspiracy by the medical-pharmaceutical complex, and so you don't vaccinate your children, well, you're impacting your kids' health, but you're also impacting community health at a profound level. So I think the thing about fear is, Once it becomes the canvas on which we paint all of our stories, you rapidly get to a very, very dark cultural place.
0: One of the most fascinating and original parts of your book, Jumping at Shadows, is your discussion of what you call friction zones, spaces where you say opportunity and despair intermingle where our dreams collide with our nightmares. Please explain these friction zones.
3: Well, I was trying to work out. There were these places I was reporting where things were happening that wouldn't happen in normal areas. So a case in point would be in those areas just north of the U.S.-Mexican border, in the desert south of Tucson, for example. You routinely hear stories of the Border Patrol finding these oftentimes dehydrated, very, very sick refugees who are wandering lost in the desert. or not Sorry, not refugees, immigrants wandering lost in the desert. And you hear stories of some of the violence that's inflicted on these immigrants once they're caught. And one of the stories you hear repeatedly is that the Border Patrol will catch immigrants and frequently push them face down into cactus spikes, which is deeply, deeply painful. If you've ever pricked your hand on a cactus spike, you know how much it hurts. Well, imagine your face being pushed down into that. There's no reason to do that other than to inflict fear to basically sort of impose a system of dominance. We're the boss here. We can do what we like. Now, if you had police going into a suburban area or an affluent-gated community and inflicting that kind of torment on people, you'd have an outrage. You'd have people up in arms saying, this is just un-American, it's unacceptable. You'd have congressional hearings, etc. But if it happens in what I call these friction zones, these areas that divide affluence from poverty or that we see as being vital to our security in some other way. In those zones, we give law enforcement and we give other agents of authority a lot more power. So you see this on the border. You see it in poor, primarily black and brown neighborhoods, where policing strategies are routinely more violent than they are in other parts of the country. You see it in airports, where we have given away a tremendous amount of civil liberties to uniformed officers in the name of security. Now, you can argue whether or not that's needed, whether or not it's sensible, whether or not it's effective. But I think it's undeniable that in these friction zones, different emotions are colliding. So the airport is a case in point. It's a wonderful place in one way. It's our gateway, our portal to the world. It's the way we experience other cultures. It's the way we travel to far off places. But it's also deeply scary because we know that terrorists target airports. And it's that juxtaposition of optimism and pessimism, of hope and fear, of good dreams, bad dreams, that I think creates particularly weird dynamics. Of
0: course, there are two bigger global fears, literally global fears, that uh, that we face, nuclear war and climate change, global warming. How do those fit into your analysis?
3: Well, I think one of the things that really interests me is how we calculate or miscalculate risk. And so when you ask Americans what they're most scared of, very few Americans say climate change. And actually climate change is something very worthy of being fearful of because if we don't get a handle on it soon, it's going to have just huge implications for how we live our lives all over the world. And we've started seeing these with these more and more powerful hurricanes, we're seeing it with droughts that are breaking harvests in many countries and so on. So in a rational world, we'd be much more scared of climate change than we actually are. And we channel energies towards dealing with it. Same thing with nuclear weapons. We are now in a more dangerous era in terms of nuclear weapons, their proliferation, their possible use than we've been in decades. And yet, until recently, until North Korea and the America-North Korea tensions grabbed the headlines, we really weren't thinking about it. It was a back burner issue. And so one of the fascinating bits of data I found when I was researching the book was when Americans prioritize fears, turns out that more Americans are scared of spiders and scared of gun control, not just guns, but gun control, than are scared of nuclear war. That doesn't make any sense. But it does speak to the fact that oftentimes how we prioritize risk and threat bears only the slimmest resemblance to what's genuinely risky, genuinely threatening. And then you see the consequences of that. Last week at the United Nations, Donald Trump gets up and in front of the world, brazenly talks about the fact that if attacked by North Korea, America will, quote unquote, totally destroy North Korea. Well, when you're using language like that, and you're the leader of the most powerful country on earth, it's absolutely clear that what he was saying was, if you push us, if you provoke us, we will drop nuclear bombs all over your country. He wasn't saying we will take out the leadership. He wasn't saying we will bring about regime change. He was saying we will totally destroy a nation of 25 million people. If that becomes the new norm, we've entered a sort of imperial age where America says, our way or the highway, and if you don't like it, we reserve the right to use the worst weapons on Earth.
0: There's a lot of very grim and horrifying stuff in your book, Jumping at Shadows, but there's also some fascinating antidotes to the toxic messages of the fear mongers and the demagogues. I was especially interested in a group you profiled in Tucson, Arizona, the Tucson Samaritans. What do they do?
3: Well, coming back to what I was saying a minute ago about these immigrants who are brought over by coyotes into this incredibly inhospitable landscape. And this is an area where it can get up to 115, 120 degrees day on end in the summer And there's very little water, and the mountains are extremely difficult to cross. And people routinely die out there. And you find bodies out there. You find the remains of bodies. It's a very, very dangerous environment. And so these groups, the Tucson Samaritans and some other groups, have essentially realized, look, these immigrants are coming over. And they're going to keep coming over because there are a lot of desperate people looking for economic opportunity or safety north of the border. And government policy at the moment serves mainly to push them further and further into the desert. So what the Samaritans and others do, they're not allowed to help the immigrants. They're not allowed to find them and help them track their way to safety in the north. That, that's a felony offense. But what some of them do do is they go out into the remote pathways in the desert and they leave water. So that at the very least, these immigrants, if they find the water, can drink something and maybe avoid a slow, painful death by dehydration. Um, And I think, you know, what fascinated me about the Samaritans was that they had worked out a way to think of the individuals they were dealing with, these migrants coming north, as real human beings with real human stories. And they were sort of transcending the politics. So the politics dehumanizes. The politics says, well, these guys are coming over illegally. They're bad people. They're trying to invade our country, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The Tucson Samaritans say, "Look, they may or may not be coming illegally. We may or may not need to fix our immigration system, our border security, and so on. But do we really want individual human beings dying of dehydration in the desert in our own backyard?" And they concluded that we didn't. That we're morally better. If we try and work out a way to save these lives and you can see these stories all over the country it's not just people going off into the desert you can see it in how local neighborhoods are trying to reimagine community you can see it in how some crime victims people i wrote about in my book have managed somehow despite the violence inflicted on them to find forgiveness for the people who hurt them now those stories to me i talk about the roads less traveled in my book it seems to me that those are sort of moral pathways that provide a better alternative. They provide a better model of humanity. And one of the things that I hope, you know, when people read my book, partly you're right, it is a very depressing litany about bad things that have been unleashed in our culture. But it's not just depressing, because the upside is that there are these alternatives that people are thinking about and living their lives around. And those stories, to me, are fascinating, and they're uplifting.
0: Sasha Abramsky, read him at the nation.com, where there's an excerpt from his new book, Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. Publishers Weekly, in a starred review, called it eloquent and devastating. Thank you, Sasha.
3: You're very welcome.
0: Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, hosted by the sports editor of The Nation and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants. So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday, now at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. sports. Take, take the food. Start making sense. The Nation podcast is co produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhoevel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.